We will be in Romans chapter 2 as we get all ready to go here. Uh, Law and Order Part 2. Uh, this morning I have entitled my sermon, The Evidence, because uh, along with chapter 1 and into chapter 2, we see Paul laying forth the evidence. He lays forth the evidence of the guiltiness of all humanity before a holy and just and righteous God. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and hopefully we are all there. And uh, if you are, then let's pray, and we'll jump right into this excellent section in the book of Romans. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for a great morning. Thank you for uh, the conversations that we've had. Thank you for the interviews that we've given. Thank you for the songs that we've sung. Thank you for the skits that we've heard. And uh, thank you for your word, which speaks clearly on all issues uh, in our life. And, and, and significantly, Father, you speak in your word to the most significant issue that any of us will ever think about the most significant decision that any of us will ever make, the most significant ruling that any of us will ever be um, uh, uh, given, and that is our guiltiness before a holy God. This is the problem with the universe. You are holy, you are just, you are righteous, and we are not. How can we, as sinful people, as people who do not meet your standard, how can we be right with you? How can we know you? How can we serve you? How can we love you rightly? How can we be innocent though we all are guilty? Father, thank you that you have sent your son. Thank you that you give us such horribly bad news of our guilt so that you can surprise us and astound us and cause us to drop to our knees before the cross because at the cross your justice was meted out perfectly to your son and at the cross forgiveness was purchased and uh, the ability to be declared innocent was purchased and was declared there simply if we believe in what Christ has done, thank you that though guilty, we can be made innocent and we can know you and we can serve you. Father, I pray for your help this morning as we tackle such weighty issues. Holy Spirit, be among us. Cause us to be attentive. Uh, cause our hearts to be softened so that when we hear your word, it, it's, it doesn't just bounce off or reflect off, but we allow it to, to, to come and to seep into who we are so that our lives are utterly changed. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and help me to speak words that are truthful, that are accurate, and that are meaningful, and that we would all come to the point where we understand both our guilt and our declared innocence through Christ if we have faith in him. And so we ask for your help. Jesus, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for enduring the cross. We love you and we thank you for it. And we ask it in your great name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. I want to begin my uh, sermon with a story. Um, there's a true story uh, that uh, came out several years ago about a man who was driving his car in San Francisco. Now, this was uh, just when they were beginning to um, monitor traffic and speeding with cameras. Um, that is, uh, cameras that would catch you if you were speeding too quickly. And so, as the story goes, uh, this man was speeding uh, in, San Francisco, in San Francisco, and, he, and he, he, he blows through an intersection without realizing 
realizing that there happened to be one of those newfangled cameras there to catch him. So a couple weeks later, he went and he got the mail, and he was uh, a little dismayed and uh, shocked to see that there was a ticket uh, waiting there for him that the county had mailed to him, and it was a ticket for speeding through that intersection a couple weeks ago for 40 bucks. Well, he had never heard of anything like this before. He didn't know that they could do that. He thought maybe this is a bit of a hoax. And so he decided to have a little bit of fun with it himself. And so what he did is he wrote out a check from his checkbook for $40 made out to whoever it needs to be made out to. Um, He then got his camera and he took a picture of the check. He took a picture of the check and then sent the picture of the check in the mail back to who it needed to go to. Well, a couple of days later, he went out to the mailbox again, and uh, there was uh, another document there from the police uh, waiting there for him. Uh, The police responded uh, by sending him a picture of his own, and the picture that they sent him was a picture of handcuffs. Um, He got the point, and he paid the money rather quickly. Um, You know, the man there in San Francisco learned a a simple but significant lesson that is not only true for the law of the land, but it's true for the law of the universe. And that's this simple but significant principle. And that is that breaking the law of the land has consequences. When we break the law of the land, it comes with a penalty. It comes with consequences. And the same is true for the law of the universe. The same is true for God's universe. When we break the law of the universe as given by our creator God, there are inevitable consequences for doing that. And as we turn to Romans chapter 2 this morning, what we're going to find out is that there are consequences for breaking God's law. There are consequences for breaking God's standards. Last week in chapter 1, Herb uh, so nicely showed us that there are consequences for being blatantly immoral, for doing the things that God says strictly not to do and just saying, God, forget you. I'm going to uh, dismiss you in my thinking. I'm just going to live however I want. I'm going to uh, disregard all law and all morality. I'm going to do my own thing. And we saw last week that there are consequences for that. Now, as Paul moves then into chapter 2, we're going to see that there are also consequences for other kinds of sin, so to speak. There are consequences for breaking God's law for the person who is moral and for the person who is religious. And so that's where we're going to go. First of all, we're going to see that the moral person is not good enough for God. The moral person is guilty before God because he or she has broken God's universal law. And then as we move on into chapter 2, we're going to see that not only is the moral person guilty, but even, even the religious people are guilty because they too have broken God's law. So let's jump in with the moral person, the moralist, let's say, and let's jump into chapter two and see what God has to say about the guilt of people who think they are good, of people who think they are moral, of people who think that they are better than other people. And I'm going to use the term moralist, and, and what I mean by that is, is, simply, is simply that. People who consider themselves more moral, more right with God, a higher up the, the scale, so to speak, than others. They're moralists. They trust in their own good deeds, and they're superior, so they think, morality. 
And Paul, as a good prosecuting attorney, as Glenn rightly played out, Paul gives a couple pieces of evidence. In the courtroom, that's what you do. The guilty or the innocent verdict uh, hinges or sways upon the evidence that is given. And and Paul, as a good prosecutor, is going to give two pieces of evidence. He's going to give two pieces of evidence against the moral person, and then he's going to give two pieces of evidence against the religious person, and they're essentially the same two pieces of evidence, slightly twisted. So let's take a look at the first piece of evidence that the prosecutor Paul admits to the court of the heavenly courtroom. Let's, let's take a look, and we see it in verses 1 through 4. The first piece of evidence, if you're taking notes, jot this down, is moral hypocrisy. Moral hypocrisy. We see this described by Paul and uh, God in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read about the hypocrisy of the moralist. Paul says, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, and here's the reason, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is is based on truth. So when you a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things? Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that God's, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And so in verses 1 through 4, the first article of evidence is laid before the court, and it's simply this. It's, it's the moral hypocrisy of the moralist. I think what Paul is simply saying is that the moralist commits the same, quote, bad sins as the people that we looked at in, in verse uh, chapter 1. Remember, chapter 1, there was a whole long list of sins. In fact, I think Herb threw it up on the screen, and it was lengthy. All of the things, these bad kind of sins, and there may be some of us who, 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 who read that part of Romans and who hear her preach and we think, okay, Paul is listing quite a vice list, but I don't find myself on that vice list very much. I mean, I've never murdered anybody, right? I've never committed adultery. I've never done the big sins, right? And so Paul addresses that person. He says, wait, 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 you're judging them. You're judging them. You you don't commit maybe those, quote, bad sins, but you actually, in reality, you do commit those same sins, just in a different way. And then I think what he means by that is, is this. He says, for instance, I would say, maybe you don't sleep with your wife, but you've lusted after her. And Jesus says that when you lust, it's the same as committing adultery. And so you may not commit the bad sin, but you're still guilty. Or, or maybe you haven't murdered anyone. You've never physically taken a, a hammer or, or, a, or, a, or a knife or whatever instrument you want and physically killed someone in anger. But didn't Jesus say, hey, if you're angry enough at your brother to, to speak uh, unkind words to him, uh, that's committing murder in your heart. It's the same thing. And so this is the kind of logic that Paul uses. And he says, listen, moralist, you, you may not commit those kind of sins in, in one sense, but you actually do. You're actually guilty, just like they are. I want to point out a few things. I want to point out four characteristics 
of the moralist. And the reason why we do that, I don't know if it's on the slide or not, but the reason why we do that is because I want you to begin to think. I'm convinced that in churches across our land, and in maybe churches across our little community, maybe in churches across Cisna Park, and maybe right here, even at Grace Bible Church, there are moralists. There are people who trust in their morality to get them to heaven. Maybe this is you. Maybe he's describing you. Four characteristics. The first one is that they judge people. They judge people. And what we mean by that is not that they declare something right or wrong, but they look at the person who's done something wrong and they say, I'm better than you. (laughs) I'm more spiritual than you. I'm on a higher plane than you. You may not be right with God, but I'm right with God. They judge people in that sense. Number two, they rank sins. That is, they categorize sins. They rank them from the worst sins to the least sins. Do you see that? You see, that's what they're doing. They're saying, maybe I, I, I do some of these sins, but I don't do these sins. Maybe I do lust, but I don't commit adultery. Maybe I, maybe I get angry, but I don't kill anyone. And they rank sins before a holy God. That's the second thing. The third thing that they do from this passage is they don't think that God will judge their smaller sins. Did you catch that in verses 2 and 3? He says, you pass judgment, you do the same things. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? And the answer is no. (laughs) The answer is no. You won't escape God's judgment. You think that God only judges the big sins. You think that you won't go to heaven just because of the big sins. But what Paul is going to argue is no, all sins are alike. They're equally offensive to God, and they will equally, all of them, keep you from heaven. They will keep you from being right with God, all of them. But the moralist thinks, well, as long as I don't do big number one and big number two and big number three, then I'm safe. The fourth thing that we see about the moralist is is that they are unresponsive to grace. We see that at the tail end of uh, verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? Because God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance. And, And the simple truth here that I think Paul is articulating is this. For the moralist, they think that they earn heaven. They think that they earn favor with God. They think that their morals earns them that. And so when they hear the good news of grace, when they hear that, no wait, you can't do anything, you can't be good enough because God is infinitely holy and you are uh, almost infinitely sinful, um, you can't be good enough, but they think they can. They think they can earn it. And when they hear, oh, you can't earn it, you just have to receive something as a gift. You have to receive somebody else's morality, Jesus Christ, as a free gift. You can't do anything. They say, I don't want that. I can do it on my own. They are unresponsive to grace. And so, are you a moral hypocrite? Are you a moralist? That's the first piece of evidence that he admits to the jury is moral hypocrisy. But that's not it. There's another piece of evidence, and it's this. The second piece of evidence that he lays forth is that these people, they trust in their morality. Or better stated, they mistrust in their morality. They trust wrongly in the fact that they think that they will be good enough for God. They think that on their day of judgment, when they die, that they will stand before God and they will give a list of things that they do, things that they have done, and that they will be good enough to earn God's favor. But Paul, in verses 5 through 16, he takes them 
into a picture of God's judgment. And he says, that is not the case. That is not how it's going to go for you. And so let's read together now verses 5 through 16. And he's going to paint a picture of, of what judgment will look like for the person who trusts in their morality. Verses 5 through 16. Let's Read this together. But because of your stubborn and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself on the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and they follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, peace to everyone who does what is good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it, and and here's, here's the key. Listen now if you're not listening. <laughs> Verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. More on that in a minute. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by the nature things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves. For even, uh, even though they don't have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their conscience also bears witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel or good news declares. Listen, there's a lot there, but let me try to sum it up for you. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, <clears throat> on judgment day, on judgment day, the only person that can stand before a holy God and God will say, I've seen what you've done. I've looked at everything that you've ever done, ever thought, every motive that you have ever had, and he looks at that person, only the person who is perfectly moral, perfectly moral, only the person who is perfectly moral could in theory earn eternal life. Now let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever done that apart from Jesus Christ? I don't know of anyone who will withstand that judgment. And then conversely he says, if we have sinned and we don't meet that standard, then we earn wrath. And so he's laid a couple pieces of evidence, the hypocrisy and the mistrust of their morality. And so here's where it hits home. I'll ask the question again. Is Paul describing you? Is Paul describing me? Are you a moralist? There's one good way that you can judge yourself in this. And it's how you answer this question. And here's the question. It's significant. How do you know you're going to heaven? Just think about that. How do you know you are going to heaven? You can restate it. How do you know that you're right with God? How do you know you won't be judged? How do you know you're not going to hell? How do you know that you're going to be right with God? How do you know you're going to heaven? What do you say? What is it that you say? If you say some of these things, then you may be a moralist. If you say, well, I'm better than most people. If you say, I haven't done some of the really bad things. I've not broken, say, the Ten Commandments. If you say, well, I'm better than this guy or that girl. 
If you say, well, my, I think at the end of the day, that which I have done is, is, is good is going to outweigh the bad. If you say those things in your mind and in your heart, friends, let me tell you, pleading and with grace and with, um, with much concern, you're a moralist. You're not a Christian. Because Christians don't trust in their good deeds to get them to heaven. Moralists trust. And if you think those things, then my friend, read what the text says is coming your way. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. The word there is that you're storing up God's wrath and it is building and building and building as you continue to think that you will be good enough for God. It's like a dam that is, uh, that is uh, keeping back water and the flood waters are getting larger and larger and larger and those waters are God's wrath and you're storing it up. And one day, this verse says in chapter, uh, verse 16, on the day of judgment, when Jesus Christ is your judge, that dam of morality will break and God's wrath will be poured out upon you. Friends, I don't tell you this to be doom and gloom. I tell you because it's true. And I don't want any of you to be there. I don't want any of you to be there. And so what do you need to do? We're going to get there in the coming weeks, but what you need to do is you need to trust in someone, one human being, who is perfectly moral. What you need to do is you need to find someone who is perfectly moral lived in obedience to God, who has no moral hypocrisy, and they trust in their own morality, and they can because they've never sinned. And that person is Jesus Christ. That is who you need to trust in if you're a moralist. And so we've seen the first major section in Romans 12. The moral person is guilty, but not only that, he goes on to say that even people who are religious, you don't have to be religious to be moral. There are a lot of people in our society who are moral and they don't give a flip about God. They're atheists, right? But Paul moves on to, char- to characterize another group of, of people and that is the, the religious person. Now, religious people tend to be moral, uh, but moral people don't have to be religious. And he moves on to the second group of people who, who trust in their religion, right? And again, he lays two pieces of evidence before us. The first one is found in verses 17 through 24. This is the first evidence that he admits against the religious person, and it's simply this, religious hypocrisy. Just like the moral person is, is hypocritical, they don't perfectly live up to what they think, so the, the religious person does as well. Let's read that in verses 17 through 24 together. <clears throat> he continues, now you, a different person, now you, uh, important note, Paul is going to use the Jewish people, that is those who are Jewish ethnically and Jewish religiously, to exemplify the person who is religious. So note that. Verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know his will, if you approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convicted that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Implied yes. 
As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now again, there's quite a bit here, but here's the point. Here's the point. The point is that the person who is religious knows what is right. They have the Bible. They know the Bible. They have more understanding of what is right and wrong. But he says, listen, just because you know more about some other people, about God and about the Bible, doesn't mean you perfectly do it. <laughs> he says you don't perfectly do it. You, you break it. You're a religious hypocrite. All of us who are involved in any kind of faith are religious hypocrites because we don't perfectly live up to what we think and say we believe. Now notice their characteristics. Again, four characteristics. And I'll ask you the same question. Do you fit in this category? Is this you? Number one, They trust that they know the Bible, verse 17 says. They boast that they have the head knowledge. That's what they do. They boast because they know what's right and wrong. Number two, they are arrogant about knowing God, about their relationship with God. They think that because they know more and have understood more about their religion or maybe about the Bible, that they are therefore superior. They're closer to God. Number three, They think they should teach others the Bible. Oftentimes, people who trust in their religion think uh, that it's their job to therefore correct everyone and to teach everyone what they know. And then finally, this is the key point. Verses 21 through 24, Paul says, they fail to obey the Bible perfectly. They are religious hypocrites. Religious hypocrites. So the religion, the person who is religious, they trust in their religion They fail because even though they know what's right, they don't act perfectly upon it. And that's the first piece of evidence. But there's one more piece of evidence for us this morning. He gives one more evidence to the jury and to the courtroom for us to consider. And not only do they, um, they they're religiously hypocritical, they trust in their religion. Or let's say they mistrust their religion. Religion, Like the person, like the moralist who trusts in their superior morality, the, the person that Paul is talking about now, they, they trust in their religious deeds. They trust in their religious practice. And he's going to talk about specifically uh, the religious practice of circumcision for the Jew, for the religious Jewish, Jewish person. And Paul is going to talk about that, but let's extend it. Uh, and, and when we see circumcision, let's think religious duties, religious practices, okay? And this is what Paul says. He says they mistrust them. They think that their religious practices will make them good with God. But Paul again corrects this, and he says, no, that's not right. Verses 25 through 29. Let's read that together. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then... If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Key point here, verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, referring to the law. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Again, let me sum it down for you to this. His point is simply this. If, if religious practice is not done 
with the right motives? If your religious deeds are not motivated by a spirit-given, transplanted, new, born-again heart that desires to please God, then it's, it's worthless, then it's sin. You know, I, I ran across a, uh, the story of a painting that a few years ago was displayed in a, a, a prominent museum in London. And uh, I, I didn't catch the, the, the name of the person who, who painted it. But they described this painting in this way. They said that when you're coming upon this painting from a distance, what you see is a monk. And you see this, this monk who's certainly religious, and it, it seems as if he's engaged in prayer. It seems as if his uh, hands are clasped, uh, clasped and his, his head is bowing in a, in a religious posture, and he's, he's praying. And so you observe from a distance, so he's a, he's a monk and he's praying, right? He's, he's worshiping God. But as you draw nearer, you find a different reality. As you draw nearer, what you see is something very different. And what you find out as you look very closely at the painting is that in reality, he was squeezing a lemon into a punch bowl and he has his cup right next to him and he's simply making a cup of lemonade for himself. Certainly the point of that painting was the point that Paul is making, which is that oftentimes our religious deeds, it looks like from a distance we're serving God, but in reality we're actually serving ourselves. <laughs> we're actually serving ourselves. Our motives are not always pure. And so Paul has given us a couple more pieces of evidence against the person who simply trusts in any kind of religious deeds. Uh, he, he says that person is, 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 is a hypocrite. They don't, they don't do what they know is right perfectly. And then they trust in their religion to make them right with God. And so let me ask you this question as we wrap this up. Are you a religionist? I don't know if that's a word, but it should be. Do you trust in your religion? How do you know if you are? Well, let me ask you the same question that I asked you before. How do you know you're going to heaven? You know, some of you answered it along the lines of morality. And Paul is describing you. But some of you didn't answer it that way. Some of the answers that might have been rattling around in your mind might have gone like this. Well, I, I attend church regularly. That's, that's how I know that God will accept me. I've been baptized twice. <laughs> I'm a member of the church. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. And you can fill in the blank with whatever religious activity that you want. Friends, please listen. If that's you today, and that's what is going through your mind, then you're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in religion. You're trusting in Sunday school or church or baptism or communion or whatever it is. And Paul, notice what Paul says. He, he calls these people, you dishonor God by breaking the law and you are a lawbreaker. Folks, I was both of these before I became a Christian. As I read this, I was a moralist. If you were to ask me before sometime in March when I was 15, I don't know what year that was, um, I would have given you the moralist answer. And I also would have given you a bit of the religious answer. But I would not have given you the right answer. And the right answer, Paul is going to share with us in the coming verses, but it behooves me to tell you that the right answer is trusting in somebody who is perfectly moral, 
Jesus Christ. And the right answer is, perfect, uh, is trusting in someone who's perfectly religious. Jesus Christ lived on the earth and he did all of his religious activities, whatever it might have been, perfectly to God, perfectly to honor the Father. He did it perfectly. That's the kind of person we need. That's the kind of obedience that we need. Friends, we need Jesus. The man who was caught speeding in San Francisco, he found out the simple truth that breaking the law has consequences. And this morning and into last Sunday with Herb's sermon, we have seen Paul making an argument, and that is that breaking God's law has consequences. Paul has been a wonderful prosecutor. He's given all sorts of evidence against humanity, and next Sunday we're going to see uh, with the help of our skit team, his closing arguments. He's going he's gonna to hammer it down in, in, a, in, a, in a courtroom scene. Each lawyer gets a chance to kind of close the deal, right? And Paul is going to pull out some big guns, and he's going to close the deal on me and on you. He's going to close the deal. He's going to find that all of us are guilty. That's not good news. But then he's going to turn it around and, and he's going to show us, if you hang with me for another week or two, he's going to show us that there is a great plea bargain that's going to happen. There's a, there's, a, there's a switch. There's a plea bargain that though we have been deemed and declared guilty, we can be found innocent, even though we aren't. And it's a wonderful deal if you take it. So that's where we're going. That's where we've been. Let's pray together and we'll rise for our closing blessing. Father,